listening to the Continent of Resistance, a podcast with interviews and discussions on labor movements across Asia. Hi, and welcome to the second episode of the Continent of Resistance podcast. Hello, and welcome to our second episode. We're really thrilled to be featuring a topic that you know Kian and I are both very passionate about, which is labor resistance in post-coup Myanmar. Yes, personally, I'm particularly interested in this topic because of so many reasons, Kevin. Uh, first of all, my work on you know my current work on labor organizing it's with what we're talking in this episode. Secondly, you know I also have a project to strengthen the collective power of migrant workers mm. in Thailand, which you know a lot of them are from Myanmar. Right. And lastly, because of my personal connection to Myanmar, you know, one of my first research was conducted in, in the southern Myanmar. Right. And my wife has worked with activists from Myanmar for a very, very long time. So how about you, Kevin? What, what draws you to this topic? Yeah, I think for me, you know, the timing and the context of the coup was really important to me. You know, the, the coup happened almost exactly just over a year after the start of, of the COVID pandemic which you know, dislocated millions of workers in Asia and around the world. And it seems that you know, the labor movement was on the defensive, was under attack. Then the coup, ha- coup happened, but for weeks, the labor movement in, in Myanmar rose up and pushed it back against the coup. And that was truly inspiring you know, anytime you know, in itself, but you know, it's even more so in that context because of so much of the workers are being attacked. And then you see this inspirational movement against the coup. Right. Actually, when we brainstormed the topics for our podcast for the for the first few episodes, we already, you know, agreed both of us to 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 feature Myanmar, right? So this has been on the top of our list since the beginning. So yeah. Kevin, let's introduce the episode, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in February 2023, this past February, Myanmar marked the second anniversary of the of the military coup that ended a decade of civilian rule. So I think we all remember the, the heroic uh, resistance by workers and unions in Myanmar. And But in recent times, the military junta has been trying really hard to normalize the country in the eyes of foreign governments and businesses in order to legitimize its rule by, for example, promising later this year. But the situation is not at all normal for for workers, for unions, and for organizers. Yes. So in this episode, we want to focus on the issues facing the labor movement in Myanmar. So we will be discussing current situations of labor organizing among government and food delivery workers in Myanmar. We are lucky to have three guests for this episode. Two of them are labor organizers and activists who would share with us what they observed about workers' challenges and responses mm-hmm. uh, in the face of an authoritarian regime and economic downturn. Right. And, and to complement this, we also have a special guest, Stephen Campbell. Stephen will help us to frame the discussion around a set of very contentious questions, dilemmas, or you know, contradictions that the labor movement in Myanmar faces today. Our conversation will also touch us upon the impact of the economic downturns on labor migration from Myanmar, as well as 
how workers are building power through informal form of organizing and grassroots organization, despite the very highly restrictive environment and labor laws. We also think you know this conversation will be important because the broader implications in the region, as authoritarianism takes hold in many Asian countries, I think the questions of possibility for worker organizing is extremely important. And I think we also should be looking at the kind of strategic discussion and risk assessment that that we should be having in this moment. So we think the labor movement's experience in Myanmar is quite important and instructive to help us understand and think about those questions elsewhere as well. I'd like to start this episode with our discussion with an organizer, Ma Sang, who works closely with garment workers in the Yangon Industrial Zone. So our conversations with Ma Sang actually touch upon several issues, but I want to highlight that we actually talked about the major shift in labor organizing opportunities for workers in Myanmar, which has resulted from political repression and legal restrictions. And I I think it's important for us in this episode to set the stage with her insights. So to kick off, I started by asking Masan to tell us about the most recent updates on the situations. So let's jump into the interview. So hi, San. Um, Hi. Thank you so much for accepting to, to talk to us. So you have worked with garment workers in Myanmar since 2018, right? I wonder if you have the sense of the most recent update on the situation of the garment workers that you have worked with. Can you talk about that? The worker organizer, you know, they see that there's a state elevator room for organizing, you know? Right. And of course, they cannot organize, you know, like openly, you know, like in the past. In the past, they used like to organize at the workplace during their lunch time or during their lunch hour, they have conversation. And also they hold the, even the junior meeting or in, in the factory. Right. Yeah. Right. And also they can hold a meeting, you know, like, yeah. So these kind of things are not happening anymore. So now currently they have to yeah, kind of, how to say, organize outside of the work, workplace mostly, or like kind of in places where they can have like social interaction when, you know, without any like pressure or outside pressure, you know, it could be at their like kind of at their housing or it could be somewhere they can have, you know, I how to say socialize or hang out. So they have started like having those kind of uh, organizing conversations. Like currently in the past, you know, they were able to, they were able to organize strikes, you know, openly. You know, what right. I mean is that in the past, they have organized strikes in front of the factory compound. They do the picket lines and also, so they also blockade the factory and also blockade the container trucks, you know, to make their like demands meet and to pressure on the employer. But this, they cannot do that anymore right now. Uh, right. And like kind of they, they, because, you know, like since, since the coup, since after the coup, the, most of the union, federation and union have been like kind of announced like as illegal organizations. And also, like if they do this kind of open strike, they could easily get arrested. And, and also inside the factory, they are like kind of experiencing various kind of like kind of repression at the factory. And but 
they they have no like kind of how to say they they could not like kind of fight back. You mentioned one thing that I, I think is worth emphasizing, which is the fact that you know government workers in Myanmar had been way before the coup, right? Since the 2010s, had been organizing, right, and been unionizing and really building up the the labor movement, which is predominantly led by women in the government sector. I kind of I think I think it's worth emphasizing that point, right? How not only that the, the union came to the fore. You know, against the coup, but actually there being a history of organizing before that. I I want to ask one maybe quite quite specific question. I, I'm wondering if you know, like the you know a lot of the union organizers and leaders who had been very very important in organizing government workers in the 2010s, say from 2010 to 2011 up until the coup, are they still doing those organizings or have or have they been? Driven into the underground, or they had they been these laid off in the factories. I'm wondering how many of those very strong organizers and and union leaders are in the government sector are still working and and organizing, or are we seeing a very complete different generation of of like? Well, like, yeah, yeah, like, like kind of the, as you said, you know, like kind of they are strong organizer, especially women, you know, because the in the in Myanmar, you know, the government sector is dominated by by um, dominated a majority are women, and also they are they are strong organizer. Women are strong organizer in the past. As 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 I stated earlier, you know, or some of the organizer do do they are like kind of the political like kind of the movement against the coup. You know, they they have to go underground, but they are still some like kind of leader. Leaders or leaders are left, and also they are like union stewards or union members. So these these workers who are former union stewards or members, or the, and the remaining union leaders are like kind of like trying to reorganize it currently. But like of course they gonna organize openly as before, and organizing became very challenging. Because you know the factory owners and factory management, than the workers, you know, you you don't need to form the union if you if or you you don't need to like kind of join the union if you form or join the union, and then you can get arrested for joining or forming the union, because they they threaten them that you know unionization is political. So like yeah, we are also in some instance that they are threatened that you know like you can you could get you could get you know we we were like kind of we were uh. Like ask the military to arrest you, you know, if you're trying to form that, if you attempt to form that union, or if you're trying to form that unions. Right. And also on the one hand, yeah, yeah sorry, Go are ahead. you asking me a question? So on the one hand, you know, they they threaten, they threaten the workers at the workplace, factory management threaten the worker at the work workplace. You know, like like if you join the union, you will get dismissed, or if you join the union or form the union. And your wage benefits will will be straight off, or like you will not be able to how to say we will no longer employ you if if our factory moves to a new location. So right. such kind of you know yet、yeah, different threats are given. You know yeah. Right.、Uh, I I also want to ask another kind of pressure, which which is something I often hear from women leaders across Asia.、Uh-huh. Is the、mm-hmm. is the pressure from the families, right? From the parents, from husbands and brothers, maybe sometimes sisters as well.、Uh, mm-hmm. 
do you can you talk about that? Because you know, not only organizing is risky, but also if they lost their job, it means a loss of income as well for the family. Do you see a lot of pressure from the family, from their husbands and brothers and sisters on those women organizers who are you know standing up for workers' rights? Ah,、uh, yeah. Actually, you know that this kind of story, like kind of, we're hard to know, like kind of like. Even since before the coup, you know that that sometimes the women organizer, you know, they 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 have to do a lot of union works, you know, or they have to go do strikes, you know, like organize the worker, and then they have to like meet with the worker to just get their workplace issue, and then to strategize, you know, how to uh, pressure the employers, you know, to cut their demands. At that time, you know, they are like I know they couldn't how to say. Care of the family duty, you know, they couldn't take care of their family duty at that time. You know, the husband, you know, like kind of, or、uh, like how to say,、um, husband do not want them, you know, to continue, you know, like kind of like、uh, work union work to do the union work, and then of course they get pressure. Sometimes they they even came to the you know union office and they're trying to make how to say. First about it, you know, you know, and and also in some instance, you know, when one one union organizer even have to like kind of or like kind of stay at one of the union office because her husband was quite you know like angry, and yeah, they and also sometimes like that a lot of you know it's it's not only the union organizer but also that sometimes I、uh, having like kind of like involved in the union executive body or you know like kind of they got from the family because you know if. If you unionize, you could lose your job. Or if you do that kind of what you know, or you may lose your job at that time. You know, the family does not support them. Some may especially discourage them. They are different workplace issues, you know. And they, among them, you know, or、uh, like I could, you know, say some of the like kind of I could give some of the example that especially women, like female worker face, you know, or like because at 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 the time being, you know, at the、uh, at some country, you know, some of the like kind of.、Uh, Uh, the employer of factory management, you know, asks you know the female worker whether you have pregnancy. So、uh, if you have pregnancy, you work slow, and so that like kind of make like kind of like make us lose the make our factory lose productivity. So and then after saying that, and then they 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 dismiss those women worker, and also you know those pregnant women worker. We are also burdened with high workload, you know, like the same as other workers, and they are assigned also like I previously mentioned, you know, they they are asked to work different like kind of tasks, and and then they are moved to in to work in different lines and see kind of thing. Of course, in the past one, there was a union, you know, strong union presence, you know, they could like kind of how to say. Like manage to pressure the employer to kind of assign the pregnant women worker with less burden job, you know, at that time. But of course,、mm-hmm. it's it's not it's no longer the case anymore. And also, you know, like kind of the, currently, the a lot of workers for like and, and for, in most factory workers have been forced overtime, you know, sometimes day and night. And then they also like are demanded to work on public holiday, and they are denied of their. All of their legal right, especially you know, they cannot take casual leave or annual leave, or you know, like they don't have any holidays. So sometimes they are, are like kind of in situation where they are forced to work involuntary overtime, you know, like kind of until midnight or until near midnight, and then and even though they are asked to do like that, factory does not arrange ferry for the worker. So like in that case, you know, worker they have to arrange their own transport, you know, to go back home. 
And then at the time, like of course, under this current you know political situation or unstable situation, and safe, you know, it is unsafe for the women worker, especially to go back home, you know, in their own way, you know, in their own transport or in in, in their own means of transport that they arrange, you know, and and they are also have instead that where factory worker or female factory worker got raped, you know, like kind of on the way back home. Yeah, yeah, I I think we we're like you know very interested to hear also you know because they're. Has been economic contraction, you know, partly as a result of the pandemic and partly because of of the the sanctions, the boycott, international pressure, and economic slow slowdown globally. How does the fact that there is economic action affect workers' ability to make demands? Right, because if you say we want higher wages, we want certain benefits that are perfectly legal, you know, that's in the labor laws, but Because of the economic situation, overall is deteriorating. Does it make? Does it mean that workers therefore are less able to de- make those demands to their employers? I think I would say workers have, you know, like kind of. Of course, you know that because because of various pressure and oppression at the workplace, and because they also like kind of experiences wage gaps, you know, wage gaps and wage deductions a lot, you know, and also on the one hand they have this economic pressure because commodity prices are rising, and then like they cannot cover. These like kind of、uh, basis, you know, like necessity, like housing, and like for their food expenses, they could they hardly, I、uh, barely, you know, cover enough with what they earn, you know. So at the time, you know, like what they end up with that, you know, at the end of the month, they get the salary, and then but the salary was used for like kind of to pay for the、uh, like kind of debt, you know. So they end up in the debt cycle. And also on the one at the workplace, also like to make you know like to get their like kind of food right, they could not like kind of make demands, and so like they are just you know struggling you know like how to say yeah in both at their factory and also both at their private life as well. You're listening to the Continent of Resistance. As we've learned from our conversation with Masang, the situation in Myanmar has created significant challenges for workers who seek to organize and advocate for their own rights. So I'd like to emphasize what she said here: that female organizers were already facing some of these obstacles prior to the coup,、right. and in the government sector in particular, which is predominantly women. Female workers have faced unique forms of discrimination and threats from their employers, you know, more than before in the post-coup and the post-COVID period. Right. So these challenges we highlight or underscore, you know, the importance of of understanding、uh, that we should have in terms of the sec- intersectionality of not only class and you know. Political issues, but in terms of gender, in Myanmar as well. So to help us understand some of the the dilemmas that the labor movement in Myanmar is facing, we also spoke to Stephen Campbell.、Uh, Stephen is a researcher based in Singapore and ha- and has a very long engagement with workers in Myanmar. In our conversation with Stephen, we discussed the major dilemmas and political questions. That activists are are facing, such as how to talk about the space for or, labor organizing in Myanmar today, 
whether or not the union should apply to be registered with the government, and also the question of whether unions should join the calls for comprehensive economic sanctions. In addition, we also spoke about how we can go beyond this dichotomy of democracy versus authoritarianism by perhaps looking at the neoliberal reality that has structured workers' lives under both the civilian government and the military government. So here's Stephen. Thanks, Stephen, for joining us. Uh, you know, we are really, really interested in, in learning more about the situations in, in Myanmar, you know, two years ago when there was a coup, there was a, a lot of international media attention. But, you know, since then, there's not as much coverage on the situations on the ground and including, you know, the labor movement, which played such an important role in pushing back against the, the coup and, and the, the military junta. Uh, you know, you wrote a piece for ARR um, uh, about Myanmar, and I want to um, ask you a thought on, on one of the key arguments in that piece, which is that the fact that, you know, despite the, the coup, despite the sort of repression, a lot of the formal industrial relations mechanisms, however problematic they are, are, are nevertheless are still there and they provide some kind of space for labor organizing, which sort of distinguish the post-coup moment from the pre-2011 period of military rule. I wonder how you would assess that argument now. Uh, and if you have changed your mind, what are the reasons? Uh, first, thanks for having me on uh, for the invite. Uh, regarding your question, the military junta has tr claimed that it is continuing with the so-called transition that began in 2010, 2011, rather than trying to stop that transition. So in claiming that it's trying to continue with the transition, it has maintained that the 2008 constitution is still in force, along with the 2011 and 2012 labor laws that legalized unionizing and legalized tripartite dispute resolution. So that those legal frameworks are still in place. In practice, of course, there has been a lot of repression and restriction. But nonetheless, they are trying to claim that the possibility of a quote-unquote normal labor resolution framework is in place. So this means that some workers have been able to negotiate some space for organizing, despite the otherwise very restrictive situation since the coup. And, you know, we'll talk more with our other guests about some of the organizing efforts still going on in, in Myanmar. I, you know, I think, you know, when we spoke in person late last year, you know, I think you mentioned this kind of really interesting kind of dilemmas facing the labor movement, right? Because we're at the moment when the military junta really wants to normalize the country, right? It wants to appear legitimate and sort of return the country to to normal in the in the sort of international arena. And, and that poses some of the dilemmas, right, to the labor movement, right? How much, to what extent do you highlight, emphasize the repression, but at the same time, not overemphasize a repression so much that you know people think there's little that can be done on the ground, whereas there actually is some organizing. Can you sort of talk about some of the dilemmas, maybe starting with this one? Uh, what are the, the arguments on both sides? What are the sort of 
reasons for for either emphasizing or or maybe downplaying the the repression on the ground. Okay. Well, first, there's an important role to be to be had for emphasizing all of the restrictive and repressive practices of the military, the violence, the killing. Uh, this is a very serious and very severe and terrific, and should be condemned in the strongest terms. And it's important to also note that, despite the military claiming that it, there's been a return to something like a normal. Situation and a normal labor dispute resolution、uh, context. In fact, these restrictions are still in place, and its workers face very serious threats and even potential violence if they take their organizing、um, in a way that that threatens the, the established this post coup military authorities. So that's there's definitely a place to be、uh, for emphasizing this restriction. However, there's a risk if Analysts and observers and commentators overemphasize the the level of repression such that it appears that it's impossible for any worker organizing. Then there's a risk that they cut off the possibility of supporting these workers and supporting their struggles, and cut off the possibility that well, outside people outside the country could who want to have solidarity with workers. Well, one of the ways they could have solidarity with workers is, you know, providing tangible resources, financial resources to worker organizers, in ways that can support their existing struggles. So this is why I feel it's really important to highlight that these struggles are ongoing and they are possible despite the severity of restriction. However, of course, if you overemphasize the space for worker organizing since the coup, then there's a risk that. We become complicit in normalizing the situation and suggesting that somehow everything is okay for workers. They can organize under these labor laws just as they could before the coup, which is not the case. So there's definitely a difficult balance that needs to be had in representing the situation by emphasizing, on the one hand, the space for worker organizing and the fact that workers are organizing, are struggling, are striking in the present. On the other hand, not overemphasizing that to such an extent that it is complicit in normalizing this situation of military rule. Thanks for this really insightful explanation. I wonder if you could talk about talk about the boycott, for example. You know, I feel like the the issue of international boycott as a, a tactic that Myanmar movements has been using is is really contentious and. You know, and add to to the mix the the changing political economic context in the past, especially two years. You know,、uh, I actually am not an expert in in Myanmar, and I don't know how the economy changed in terms of its integration into the the global economy, in terms of you know industrializations and and the way in which the workforce has been integrated into that, and how 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 does All of this changed the dynamics in terms of, you know, effectiveness of boycott. I know boycott is one contentious issues, and there's a dilemma, as you said,、uh, um, as well. Could you could you talk about this? Sure. Well, the the contentious issue is specifically regarding、uh, comprehensive economic sanctions, and this is something that is debated, and there are different views on within the Myanmar labor movement, and this is also related to the question of how much space there is for worker organizing since the coup. So, on the one hand, there are some、uh, 
activists and organizers in the Myanmar labor movement, individuals who I respect a lot, who argue that under the current situation since the coup, military repression and police repression is creating a situation in which companies, foreign companies, are getting higher profits because of the repression of workers, uh, because it's more difficult for workers to organize. So if these foreign corporations are investing in Myanmar, they are profiting from a highly restrictive situation in which workers are being uh, repressed. And that is one of the arguments that is made for why there should be this comprehensive sanctions against investment in, for example, the garment sector. The other side of the, the argument, or one of the other arguments that has been made, is that since the coup um, and the economic contraction because of closing factories, a decline in orders, and this exacerbated the economic problems that actually started with the COVID pandemic. As a result, the individuals in Myanmar's uh, working class people have faced a severe livelihood uh, contraction and are facing very dire uh, conditions. And for that reason, they are extremely dependent and on a wage to support themselves and their families. And so other people in the Myanmar labor movement, who I also respect very much, are also very wary of endorsing a call for comprehensive sanctions because this means in, if it was carried through, that there would be a decline in this, for example, garment sector employment, which there are people who are depending on. And I find this a very difficult question. And I think that both sides in this debate have raised some very important points that need to be taken into consideration. It would be much easier if there was a unified view on this, but understandably there isn't because these are very difficult topics. Yeah. I think what happened in Myanmar, especially the coup uh, two years ago, changed a lot of things, right? Changed a lot of things, not, not only in Myanmar, but also in Thailand too, right? Because we all know that there are a lot of migrant workers coming from Myanmar, you know, in Thailand. And well, I remember probably a few years ago, people were really hopeful in thinking that, well, in from the Thai from the Thailand side, you know thinking that, oh, you know, migrant workers in Myanmar would not have to endure this kind of exploitation in Thailand anymore if the economy in, in Myanmar took off, you know, and they have their own vibrant economy, right? So, yeah, but now everything changed. Everything changes, you know, like the, the migrant workers, I feel like not decreased, you know, but increased even, even more. I wonder what, Stephen, what, what do you, you know, from, from observing from, from outside, what, what do you see in terms of, in terms of this changing in, in migration pattern or in, in the migrations, uh, in terms of migration issues, you know, you, you just mentioned, you know, people, uh, some domestic workers going to Singapore. What, what else do you see uh, as a change in the past year or two? Well, definitely this significant numbers of people trying to leave the country. There were always people seeking work abroad. So that was not new, but definitely the, uh, the military coup and its impact have increased the pressures for people to go abroad because so many places are closed, workplaces are closed. Mm -hmm. Then also, I think it's, um, I will look at specifically at, at Singapore because I did some research I mentioned on domestic workers in Singapore. And one right. of the interesting 
findings was that in in some cases, I, I spoke with some labor agency brokers, people who recruited workers from Myanmar, and the this one agent who I spoke with said that because there was such a large number of young women seeking to get work as domestic workers in Thailand, that there was a backlog that they couldn't all get in to Singapore quickly. So certain agents were saying, well, if you accept a lower wage, then you may be able to go more quickly. And so the this individual I spoke with said that there was a decrease for some people in the the average or the, the base monthly pay that they were getting was on their first time arrivals into Singapore. So the increased number of migrants trying to leave the country because of these pressures that happened since the coup was leading to a decrease in the wages and salary in Singapore, in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases. That's, that's really interesting. Mm. All right. One really important question or interesting question I, 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 I've been to ask for a long time is this, this kind of dichotomy between democracy and authoritarianism. I mean, certainly after the coup, you know, and and obviously the, Myanmar is not the only country in the region, Southeast Asia or, or Asia as a whole, that has seen the return of authoritarianism or at least authoritarianization, right? Even in countries like, for example, South Korea, where there is formal democracy, electoral democracy, but, you know, the 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 ruling, the president kind of has a very, very anti-union position. So, I, I increasingly, I think I, I feel like in the region, a lot of politics is framed around this dichotomy between authoritarianism and the democracy. But I want to see, I want to ask how you see this question, especially, you know, the kind of kind of economic system, neoliberalism. You know, it, it's also no friend to workers either. Even if you have electoral democracy, the economic system is such that that workers are still. Not doing great. Can you talk about how we may break out of this dichotomy and and maybe talking a little bit about the the, the economic dimensions uh, in in Myanmar, not just the political? Okay, I think this is an extremely important question because I think there's a risk because of how uh, horrific and violent the coup and the post coup situation has been, the the military violence. That there's a risk of look at politics. During the so-called transition, had a lot of problems. I mean, the Rohingya genocide was just the most high-profile of those, but there was also a lot of other issues. And regarding workers specifically, one of the issues is that the the so-called transition was framed around, on the one hand, quote-unquote democracy, which was a very restricted form of electoralism, but also a an economic transition. And this, the agenda that was pushed on Myanmar by people like. Well, organizations like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, but also various foreign economists, foreign consultants and governments, was that Myanmar had a single development choice. This was to become a foreign investment-driven, low-wage, extractivist export economy that was incorporated into global supply chains. And this was presented as though this is somehow part and parcel of a democratic transition. But what it did was require any elected government to crack down on worker, peasant, and student organizing and mobilizing because the in order to get foreign investment, these governments had to create a welcoming environment for foreign investment. And so when workers mobilized, when workers were going on strike, this was improving a situation for workers, but from the government's point of view, trying to attract foreign investment, they saw this as a threat because it was creating a less than welcoming environment. 
So there was very, there were certain labor laws granted in order to provide this space, which were important, and they did in fact increase the space for work organizing. But at the same time, both elected governments in the transition, the so-called transition from 2010 to 2020, also cracked down on worker organizing, as well as peasant and student organizing. And one of the, I think, important interventions that came out, critical interventions were people in the country, as well, well as other analysts who were arguing that this foreign investment-driven development agenda is not, in fact, the only alternative, the only option. There's an additional issue that comes up in Myanmar at the present because there's a dilemma and a debate regarding whether workers who organize should register formally with the post-coup military authorities. Because there are critics who uh, understandably who argue that registering a union with the post-coup military authorities is legitimating it in a way. And again, in a way, sort of normalizing the situation. But other people argue that, well, this could provide some, however small and limited, some increased space to organize and to negotiate. And so this is another one of these dilemmas and debates that's happening. So some workers are choosing to organize in their workplace and to try to negotiate directly with the employer without going through any formal mechanisms to register as unions. And interestingly, this also happened before the coup. There were labor groups who, who did not agree with the labor law that was in place and they said that it was very restrictive and that it was, uh, again, kind of this uh, a critique of the, the neoliberal use of this kind of labor law that's trying to, in fact, restrict worker mobilizing rather than enable it. And so some uh, kind of more radical worker organizers said, let's organize, organize unions, not register them. And our power is based on workers' collective solidarity in the workplace. It's not based on relying on them. And this, you know, if to make other comparisons, this is something that historically is connected to like the industrial workers of the world who also argue that we should they, workers should not register with formal government mechanisms because then you become reliant on the government rather than on worker solidarity. But nonetheless, in the present, there is this move where there have been, since the coup, workers who have formally registered as unions, which is interesting. It's a question about whether and to what extent this actually gives them space. Is it, in fact, giving them increased space to organize, maybe even to strike? Or is it simply a, a superficial acknowledgement by local military authorities uh, of, this, of these forms of organizing? So, we have both. We have these informal forms of worker organizing in Myanmar and some um, formal registered unions, unions who are registered before the coup, as well as workplace unions that have registered since the coup. I, I, I do want to just make one final point or kind of half a question, which is something that we, we spoke about before. A really interesting point you, you made, and I want to ask you to expand on that, which is, you know, you argue that uh, along the line, what you were saying about sort of neoliberal conditions and, and government's restrictions over labor organizing uh, even before the coup. And if they if the government had, the civilian government had already, you know, had actually allowed more organizing, the, the labor movement would have strengthened the opposition to the coup. Can, can you expand on that? Because that's a super fascinating point. Yeah. So we saw that after the coup, the the substantial anti-coup, anti-military opposition was emerged out of these networks of working class and grassroots networks of students, workers, and, and small farmers. And 
this was the bulwark against the reassertion of military rule. It was not the NLD. However, during the transition, the NLD presented itself as though they were the vehicle that was going to, through which the, the military was going to be challenged. And so there were often cases during this transition where military, uh, sorry, where NLD officials restricted or worker organizing or peasant organizing or even told student organizers to not uh, to engage in extra parliamentary activism because now that we had this elected government in the NLD, they were going to take charge of asserting a kind of civilian democracy. So they ended up restricting or, or at least not enabling as much as they could of worker organizing. So hypothetically, had the NLD taken that opportunity during the transition to say, look, the only real bulwark against the reassertion of military rule is going to be working class and other grassroots forms of organizing. So let's take this opportunity to encourage and to support as much as possible the organizing of workers and students and others. Then they could have built up this social basis that we saw after the coup was in fact the the main opposition to the military. And potentially we could have had or seen an even stronger uh, established social basis for this opposition to the research and military rule. All right. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. This is part one of our conversations on Myanmar. In part two, which now you can also listen to, we'll be discussing gig workers organizing. You have been listening to the Continent of Resistance podcast. You can download our latest episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also visit our website at laborreview.org. See you until next time.